But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, <laughs> killed his family with an axe. Stacked them neatly in one of the rooms of the West Wing, and uh, then he, uh, he put uh, both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. Hello and welcome, welcome and hello, this is Wait You Haven't Seen and it's a podcast where we talk about movies, specifically we talk about a movie that at least one of us has never seen before and uh, my name is Travis, aka TV's Travis, joining me this week I have Christina, Hello. I also have Monica, Hiya, Hi, and Keith, Hello. Hey, uh, so Keith, you, uh, our movie this week was uh, the 1980 Stanley Kubrick, The Shining, uh, Keith, you'd never seen this before. Correct. I'd never seen the movie, and but I have read the book, so I, yeah, we'll get into that. Right. Uh, yeah, that, that doesn't really prepare you for this movie much, does it? Not entirely, <laughs> but, you know, it, it. I still enjoyed it. It was mm-hmm. still a good movie. I mean, it's Kubrick. I haven't seen a Kubrick movie I haven't liked. I can uh, second that. I have not seen one, and I think I've seen all of his movies now. Um, no, I haven't seen one of his that I haven't liked. But, yeah, this is very, vastly different from the Stephen King novel. Um, we'll get into that a little bit, but I always like to start kind of with the cast. It's just a good place to start. So, um, you know, you have Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance. Uh, he was really good in this. Super good. Now, it's funny because he was Kubrick's, uh, according to everything that I've been reading, he was Kubrick's first choice to play Jack. Um, Stephen King did not like that. He he felt that Jack should have been uh, a more likable character at the beginning of the movie and slowly descend into madness. Um, and he felt that Jack Nicholson was known for playing unhinged characters, and so he didn't ever create the uh, the version the of Jack. Yeah, he didn't create the version of Jack that that King had wrote written in the novel. Um, but yeah, in in the in the book, he really did seem like he was trying to be a better man for his family. Mm-hmm. You know, even, you know, what they spoke about with the with the doctor there in the beginning, you know, he, you know, he saw that as his wake up call and he just snapped right to attention and he was the family man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and again, we're going to go over a little bit more some of the uh, a lot of the differences between book and movie. Um, but that wouldn't that didn't fit the movie that Kubrick was trying to make. So he went with Nicholson. You got Shelley Duvall as Wendy. Um Again, very different from the Wendy of the book. And uh, I liked her in this. I know she, I think, was up for a Golden Raspberry in 1980 for Worst Actress. Um, but she was great in this. She was I, fantastic. I, it's a whole lot of teeth. It is a lot of teeth. Uh, no, that's, I, that's, I really did like her. We should get physical this, about it. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because this was the same year that she made Popeye. And, I mean, if you want to talk about somebody who's like perfect casting for olive oil, it was Shelley Duvall in 1980. Um, yep. But I, I liked her in this as, uh, and I know that, um, what was it, afterwards, I know Jack Nicholson has talked about it was one of the hardest jobs he'd ever seen any uh, actress do. Um, and she was just tormented by uh, by Kubrick throughout the, the making of the movie. And I don't think that he did that from a place of like malice. I, I think it was just his twisted way of trying to get the performance out of her that he wanted. 
but she was fantastic. I mean, she played the part in this movie very well. Again, vastly different from the book version, which is what uh, King didn't like. Um, I think he was once quoted as saying it was the most misogynistic character ever uh, put on film or something, and that she was only there to scream and be stupid, but I liked her quite a bit. She, oh my God, like there were scenes in this where she like, she kicked butt. She, like she was so smart if it wasn't for the silly ghosts. Right. Like she yeah. would have like, won. Yeah, I'm going I'm to put him in the room that I can lock. He's not going to starve to death and he's not going to freeze to death. Yeah, that that's true. That was smart. No, I, I liked her quite a bit. Um, I thought that the way she portrayed somebody just at the end of their rope and it kind of made sense given the, the backstory that they gave in the book. Or in the in the movie, rather, of like, she's trying to make this work with him. He's had his problems in the past, but he's trying to be better, and she's trying as well. But, you know, obviously, when Danny shows up with bruises on his neck, her initial thought is, you did this to him, and it, that makes perfect sense, given the history and the fact that nobody else is in the hotel. But no, she she did a great job, and it's... It's really, it's almost sad to hear some of the stories of like Kubrick telling the cast and crew to not sympathize with her when they were making the movie and and all of that again just to push her and get the the performance that he wanted. But you know, Kubrick was kind of a crazy person and definitely an over perfectionist, which is why they have the the rumor that the the backing up the staircase shot took 127 takes. I think is the, what the Guinness Book of World Records says. Holy wow. That was like my favorite scene, of course. I mean, it's got the best lines. Oh, yeah. Um, now, the the Steadicam operator and the editor dispute that and say it was more like 35 to 45 takes. Even that's an insane number of takes to do a shot like that. And there, there aren't any, like, there are not very many short shots in this movie. You know, Kubrick was not known to do a lot of quick cuts, but everything is these long, drawn-out shots that really, I mean, first of all, the it's visually just a beautiful film. But that's that's Stanley Kubrick. He didn't make gorgeous. Yeah, he did not make movies uh, that weren't just visually stunning. Um, and everything in it. So this movie also has a ton of conspiracy theories around it. Uh, are any of you familiar with any of those? Uh, the moon landing one. Okay, with, that's uh, Danny's Apollo Eleven. Yeah, sweater. that's that's one. Um, where the you know it's people saying that it was his admission that he had done the fake moon landing. Um, well. Being the perfectionist he is, he would have insisted on shooting on sight. Yeah, that's true. Um, but are you familiar with any of the other um, kind of I, I, things that I they doubt? There was supposed to be something about the carpet, like that hexagonal carpet, but I don't remember what it was. Yeah, and and I need to watch. There's a documentary that came out 2012, I think it was, called Room 237. Um, mm. you, it was on Netflix for a while, and I was going to watch it, and... I unfortunately decided to watch it one night at about two o'clock in the morning. So I made it through the opening five minutes and fell asleep and never watched it again. And now it's not on Netflix. Um, or... Also, it was supposed to be room 217. That was in, in the, the book. book. Yes. Yeah. There's but a the reason hotel... for that. Yeah. The hotel didn't want to uh, have people not want to stay in room 217 because it was the haunted room. Right. Yep. Which, the... I think they it... would have been able to charge a premium for it. Honestly. <laughs> They got more people requesting that room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but because uh, that was a, a hotel in Oregon, I think it was, that they used for the exteriors, and they were the ones that supposedly asked Kubrick to change the room number. Um, but there was um, there was an interesting video I saw once with uh, a film critic, and I'm going to try and find his name. Um, 
but he had broken down about how, um, let's see, that machine shining. And this is thoroughly gripping. Um, okay. So uh, Rob Ager is his name, and he had a breakdown of how he thought that Kubrick was working in um, allusions to uh, sexual abuse by Jack of Danny in the movie. And this is one of those where it's, you know, they're really connecting a lot of dots and talking about stuff that's happening in the background. Normally, I don't buy a lot of those. However, with Kubrick, I kind of almost do because he was so meticulous in everything that would be in every shot that it's hard to believe that he would have that many kind of accidental shots. Does that make any sense? Right. Um, but I, I, I highly recommend finding he's got a, an article on it where he kind of breaks down um, why he thinks that. And it's obviously a big change from the book as well. And it sort of undercuts some of the supernatural stuff that goes on, which is partly why I don't particularly care for it. But and it makes Jack seem like an even worse person than he already is. Um, but it was interesting to to hear his thoughts on it and why that went. So that that's something that I would recommend you check out if you get a chance. I don't know if any of you had heard any of that before. Not at all. Okay. Um, getting back to the cast a little bit, uh, Danny Lloyd played Danny. Um, now, Monica, you and I know somebody who almost played Danny. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was Brian Ibbett. <laughs> yep, Brian Ibbett, uh, host of uh, Coverville and The Morning Stream and America's Next Top Podcaster, was almost cast as Danny Lloyd. Uh, which yeah. I, I thought was I always thought was cool, but um, Danny, I, you know, Danny Lloyd was fine. I had no problems with him. Um, he was he was good. He is interesting because the the more stories like Kubrick apparently really was protective of him on set, and uh, in fact even did uh, things like the scene where Shelley Duvall is carrying him away after you know she finds the bruises on his neck. That's a um, like a dummy. That's not Danny Lloyd at that point. Because yeah, I, I felt that it looked a little, little stiff. stiff. Yeah, yeah. He didn't want Danny um, Lloyd to know that he was making a horror movie. So, in fact, <laughs> like from what I read, Danny Lloyd didn't even see the full uncut movie until he was seventeen. So, oh wow. Um, but uh, kid did fine. Uh, you know, he wasn't asked to do a lot of. I mean, he didn't have a ton of dialogue, so a lot of his stuff was done uh, with face, you know, facial expressions and riding his big wheel around, which had to have been fun. Because oh yeah, I had one of those. Only I mine, to mine have was a, a... Trick like that. Oh yeah, right. That would have that would have been the bee's knees right there. Um, also, my favorite actor in the movie uh, by far. Okay, before I give mine, Monica, your favorite actor in the movie. Oh, I wasn't prepared for this. Um, <laughs> gee. I'm gonna. <laughs> I I think I'm gonna go Jack Nicholson. Okay, that's a good choice because uh, he was great in that. Christina, how about you? I mean, other than Jack, uh, I like the. I mean, they they weren't there in there very much, but the uh, the Grady girl. <laughs> that that doesn't surprise me at all, to be honest with you. Um, which is you know that's good. Uh, Keith, did you have anybody that really stood out for you? Um, I I I, I kind of like uh, some of the ghosts. Um, uh. Lloyd and Grady. Okay. I think ghost form. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked, uh, I, I felt that they really, I, they, they were pretty accurate to the book. Okay. Okay. So, you know, at, le- at least it, it's been at least 20 years since I've read the book, but I remember quite a bit and I'm pretty sure they were fairly accurate. So all right. All accurate right. enough for my liking anyway. Now, now I'm going to give you all the correct answer, uh, which was Scatman Crothers. <laughs> Scatman Crothers is Dick Halloran is my favorite actor in this movie and he's 
amazing. Uh, he, he really bothers yeah. me in this movie. He really bothers you in this movie? Okay, I want now yeah, I want to know why. Just, he's just he's just a little anear, annoying to me. I don't know. It's just he's always been like just I don't know, there's like a like a way that he speaks that just kind of it's always been weird. <clears throat> and then I come to find affection for him and then he dies and it's kind of like, well, that was that was point. Yeah, but I mean, he was Hong Kong fooey. Like I grew up watching those cartoons, so when I saw this movie, and I was like, "Holy crap, that's the voice of Hong Kong Fooey." Well, then that's why you <laughs> like him. Like, I've, I don't know what that is, so I wouldn't. I, <laughs> I really didn't know you... him from before that. Oh. I feel old. Hong Kong Fooey was a great cartoon, uh, where a, a dog. Uh, there was a dog janitor that became like a superhero. What Trust me. Tr- uh, this would have been mid '80s. Well, it had to have been because um, Scatman did the voice, and I think he died and the mid to late 80s so he was also the voice of jazz in the transformers cartoons back in the day oh nice nice yeah they uh they cut quite a bit of his role out uh in the movie from the book so i was like uh, i was i was disappointed that you know they they that kubrick didn't have him doing as much in the movie as he did in the book yeah again uh he's adapting the book and he changed a lot of it to to fit the story right. that he was trying to tell but i just loved him in it i he, like in the book, he's one of my favorite characters. Okay, I just he him as a uh, as a character actor. He just there's something this like warmth and friendliness to him that uh, that Scatman had that was great. Now, Diddy, I do agree. Jack Nicholson was fantastic in the movie. Yes. Um, also, uh, Rishi B in the chat says that uh, so the talking with his finger was just for giggles. Then uh, mentioning Danny Lloyd and the whole like not wanting him to be in a horror film. It was he was supposed or he was given the impression that he was doing some kind of a drama and the the talking with his finger was actually Danny Lloyd did that in his audition apparently from what i read you know again this is internet trivia so take it with a grain of salt but that was apparently a thing he came up with man brian had no shot then <laughs> that um, finger thing is creepy as hell yeah it is well the voice too uh and you mentioned grady and lloyd um joe turkell who played lloyd was uh went on to do um blade runner a couple years later um he i it's such a small part in this the part of lloyd but he's great in it he's creepy as hell too joe turkel just has this look on his face and his imdb photo is him as lloyd but he just has this look that, that just like i don't know i don't i don't know how to describe it it gives me shivers though he's still alive really because he looks like he's about 80 years old in this movie He's 92 right now. How is that even? Wow. Okay. I thought um, he died in the movie. That's how <laughs> and then one other actor um, of note, because uh, there wasn't a ton of roles in this. Uh, the uh, Oh, two things. Number one, uh, both the women in the bathroom, the young woman and the old woman, um, okay. this was their only film credit ever. Hmm. Um, and, you know, props to both of them for being comfortable enough to uh, walk around naked on set and, you know, for as long it takes as, as Stanley Kubrick does to just be yeah. there. Especially, and full frontal in 1980. Yeah. Well, that you know. Was, well, j- having somebody who was comfortable doing that, you yeah. know, that's what I'm saying. That was. A lot of movies had a lot of nudity back then. That's, I was full, just watching. Full frontal was the, full frontal nudity was was kind of the cutoff though that a lot of people weren't there wasn't a lot of it yeah i I just finished watching the 1976 version of carrie because the film sack had done the other version or no they just did that one that's right um and in it there's just 
There's like 14 women in the beginning of the movie that are full frontal nude with like, I, I think there were Americans, I'm just saying. But 1976 naked is different than now naked, just so you know. Very, very true. Um, and then last actor was, and it was a tiny little role, but it was Tony Burton played uh, the guy at the gas station that um, Halloran calls and says, hey, can you set me up with a snowcat? And I only bring him up because he was in, uh, I think, four of the five, six Rocky movies. He was Apollo Creed's um, trainer. And okay. I recognized him right away um, when I was watching it again. Familiar. I did I I never noticed that he was in the movie before. I just noticed it on this watch. I'm like, wait a minute. That's Apollo's trainer. Um, and it's such a small role that, you know, blink and you'd miss it type of thing. But overall, I really enjoyed the cast. Now, I, I do want to contrast because there was a miniseries that came out in 1997 on ABC that um, more closely followed the book. Um, and it was a made-for-TV miniseries, but I wanted to go over just some of the main cast in that just to give you an idea of who they cast uh, in contrast. So instead of Jack Nicholson, we get Steven Weber as John, <laughs> John Torrance. Uh, a very, very stark difference, but he fit the uh, the book version a lot better. Um, inst- rather than Shelley Duvall playing Winifred Torrance was Rebecca De Mornay, also a very, very, very different version. <laughs> um, and then uh, the, only, the other one was um, Melvin B- Van Peebles played Richard Dick Halloran. Uh, and that is father, I believe, father of Mario Van Peebles. So eh, I would say... Uh, I like both. I like both versions. If you get a chance to find the um, 97 miniseries, it's worth watching. I think, Keith, you would probably enjoy it because of how more, much more closely it follows the book. It's hard to find, though. I went to look for it uh, to watch this week just for fun. It's not streaming anywhere. It's not available on any service to buy. The only place I could find it was on archive.org, and they had a six-hour-long version of it because it had all of the commercials that originally ran on ABC when it was out in 97. <laughs> yeah. I did I mean, not have I, the patience for that. I do have to say, though, that miniseries is the better way to go for King adaptions. A King book. Yeah, it usually works because his novels are so damn long. I mean, that's why they I broke it the, into two films. Yeah, I mean, I, I've read the unabridged shine, or uh, the unabridged... Uh, the stand that was a that was a long read yeah i would imagine so um so okay we we talked a little bit about the visuals of this but um did you notice how much steady cam was used a lot yeah uh it so was such a beautiful movie like especially even just starting from the beginning just the long sweeping with the credits and did you notice how the credits in the beginning feel like the movie's ending it's yeah. just me yep well, you know, part of the reason for that uh, probably is um, if you've seen Blade Runner, uh, the the end of Blade Runner is outtakes of those shots going up that mountain pass. They actually mm. used outtakes of that those shots. Ridley Scott asked to use it when he was forced to put the happy ending in. So the shots in Blade Runner of them driving off in the car were reused from The Shining. But yeah, I did notice that kind of feel like um, it had this... W- and, and I think a lot of that's that music that was playing too. Um that music over that, you know, wonderful, beautiful helicopter shot uh, going along. And that that was one of the better helicopter shots I've seen in a movie, period. And for the time period that they did it, you know, because they didn't have great rigs to put cameras onto uh, helicopters at that time to get that really smooth feel. Uh, so I like that quite a bit. Yeah, they had the inventor of the Steadicam was the Steadicam operator on this movie. 
And this was one of the early movies that used Steadicam. It was this, and I think it was Marathon Man, and um, it was something else right around the same time had been using it. Uh, but he used it a lot in this. And what I thought was funny reading uh, reading about it is the Steadicam operator was told he would not be working on the movie for more than six months. And he's like, okay, that's fine because I have to be back in the United... Because they filmed this in England on a soundstage. He had to be back in the U.S. to film Rocky Two, And at uh, the six-month period, they were, they were only halfway done shooting The Shining. So he had to fly back and forth on Concord every week to shoot both movies. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, this, this movie notoriously was long. It, it had a shooting... Length, I think it was principal photography was over 200 days, um, in part because Kubrick would make them do so many takes. Uh, I know, you know, there's the famous 127 takes, but the the shot of um, the tennis ball rolling up to Danny when he's on the carpet apparently was um, 50 takes to get that right. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the story would go that um, Jack Nicholson... And, uh, oh, it was the shots in, okay, so the, the scene in the red bathroom where he meets um, Grady, which in and of itself is a really creepy scene just because of how long it goes on. Like, it's uncomfortably long as it just keeps going. And you keep, you keep thinking it's going to end at some point, and it doesn't, and it, you know, and all that. But um, that they would shoot, and then the two of them would sit down with Stanley Kubrick and look at, like, a video replay of it. Jack would go, yeah, that's, that's pretty good, isn't it, Stanley? He'd go, yep. Let's do another one. And it's like, oh, I and and I had a friend of mine who would be like that sometimes when we would shoot stuff back in high school. And it can be difficult. So I can't imagine having to do the kind of stuff that they would do in this movie because everything is done in camera too. If you, you, you notice how beautiful it is, there is one composited shot in the entire film. Can anybody guess what that might have been? One of the airport sh- shots? Okay, that's a good guess. Monica or Christina, any idea what would have been the composited shot in this? Uh, no. <laughs> um, the, hed- the hedge maze, that, sh- that overhead shot of the hedge maze. Hmm. Um, what they did was they, they made just that center section of the hedge maze and had um, actors walking around in there, and they shot it from the roof of a building. And then they had the scale model they would shoot from about six feet in the air, and then they composited those two together. Outside of that, everything in the movie is just practical effects in camera including the um wall of blood from the elevator Hmm. now interestingly that only took three takes i forgot how many times you see that blood elevator you see it a lot it's like four times before it actually i guess happens Mm -hmm. as many times as they used it i don't know if they just used different you know sections of it for the most part but i think they got use out of all three takes uh, I'm pretty sure it was the same take that they used every time, but it was only three takes. Here's the kicker, though. It took nine days to set that up. It's a lot Ooh. of blood. So yeah. each time... Think how many people they had to drain for that. I know. And you can't use the same ones twice because they're not going to be ready in nine days. So you need at least three weeks for them to replenish all that blood. And blood gets sticky. Oh. It coagulates. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's going to have to exsanguinate so many people all at once. He's a perfectionist. He's not going to use fake stuff. No, not at all. Yeah, the I, funny I, part is, is apparently uh, to get it in the trailer, they uh, said it was rust water. Yeah, yeah, that was great because the MPAA was like, no, you can't have blood in the trailer. Not if it's going to show for all audiences. And he was like, it's not. It's rusty water. So uh, what was it? Saul. Okay, so I didn't know this, and I don't like 
the theatrical poster for this movie. I will say that that yellow. You have you ever seen the yellow poster? It's not what I have on the stream. Um, it's this weird, weird face inside the the T of the Shining. Oh yeah, that one. It's yeah, it's gross. Well, you know, Saul Bass did that poster, and it, I mentioned Saul Bass a couple of weeks ago in the episode about Psycho because he had done the opening credits. And no offense to him. No, uh, no offense to him at all, but I, I hate that poster. But apparently he did like 300 versions of the poster. Jeez. And that's the one that Kubrick liked. If that's the one I'm thinking of anyway, I don't know. That's the one, that's the poster I always think of with this movie, and I just don't like it. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit anything else. Um, yeah. It... Okay, so let's talk about some of the differences between book and movie. Have, have all of us read the book or are familiar no. with the book? No? You're familiar with the movie, no, Monica? Not even a little bit. Okay. Um, the hedge maid was added in for the movie. It was supposed to be a topiary garden. Yeah, well, in the book, there's like hedge animals that come to life. And that was a change that Kubrick made that made perfect sense because they just didn't have the, the budget and or special effects to pull that off convincingly uh, in, right. I mean, in the late 70s. So that that one's fine, but there were a lot of tonal changes to it. Um, Christine, have you ever read the book? Bits and pieces. Okay. Um, so... We talked a little bit about how Jack is like a more likable character and he's he's trying to be the good father and he's trying to kick alcoholism um, and all of that in the book. They kind of threw all that out the window in order to go uh, in a different route. Um, I love the quote from Stephen King after he saw this movie where he compared it to a beautiful Cadillac that had no engine in it. Like you could sit down and you could appreciate the car, you could smell the leather but you couldn't drive it anywhere. Like, it just didn't... He didn't like it. Um, I think as an adaptation, the changes that they made, it, it is a very different story that they, that Kubrick was telling, but I think it was a really effective story. And I think that time has kind of borne that out in how well this film is aged and how strong of a following it has in terms of film, film going. Um, Monica, I know you like this movie a lot. That's why... I wanted to have you on here. Yes, it is a it is a beautiful film and you know, it's in my wheelhouse of horror and it just it just hits the 80s right there. So it kind of it's not really 80s though. I feel more 70s in this movie than 80s. Yes, yep, definitely that, but I think it's a different kind of horror uh film because it's it's so you you almost have to wonder like okay, how much of this is actually happening to them versus not because Jack goes into the gold room. He sits down. He's talking to Lloyd. He has a drink. He sort of is acting drunk at that point. Not really, but kind of. But then Wendy comes running in, and there's nothing there. There's nobody there. So, you know, there's all these, like, weird weird things going on, and you sort of question, like, how much of it's really happening? How much of it is just inside his head? How much of it is supernatural and is is really, uh, really there, but in, you know, a non-physical way? Um, I really like that about this movie. That's the thing with the movie too. Like you can, you can be perfectly right if you say it's because of that, because of his addiction, and because he's you know losing his mind because of isolation, or if you want to say it's a spiritual thing, which I kind of believe in the ghosty thing because I mean, who unlocked the door for him, right? <laughs> right. Who yeah, unlocked right. the door? What was the woman that he was hugging and kissing in the room? Well, if that's a delusion to him, I mean, but like you can't explain the unlocking the door. Yeah. And so that was, so the thing that I'd mentioned earlier about um, that, uh, was it Roger Ager, Robert Ager's uh, theory, he talks about how, like, Danny going into the room 
was a dream sequence. And I, there's, you know, and then Jack going into the room is actually like a, a dream sequence too of him not wanting to fa- face what he had done or something. My problem I have with it is it undercuts other parts of the movie. Things like the door getting unlocked for him. Because that was clearly locked and there was no way he was getting out of that without some help. So somebody, something had to help him. Um, the way that he's kind of spiraled out of control. And, and that was, I mean, Jack Nicholson just kills it with that with his his descent into madness now oh, yeah i will agree uh that he's kind of already a little unhinged at the beginning of the movie uh, and that's jack nicholson he's got those crazy eyebrows and you know he's just a weird like a weird presence even during the interview it, it seems like yep this is jack in full swing mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah pretty much but it works and yet you still see him and you see him spiraling out of control. You also see him trying to fight it a little bit. You know, when he has the dream and uh, he's freaking out about his dream, there's genuine, like he doesn't know what to do at that point, but he, he very quickly uh, kind of came under the influence of the hotel. And I love the line where he talks about uh, when she brings him breakfast in bed. First of all, that scene. So she comes into the room and the first part of the scene is shot in the mirror when he's eating his breakfast, and then it flips, which I thought was really uh, interesting, especially when I rewatched it. But I also liked how he said right then, you know, the, when I came up here for my uh, my interview, it felt like I'd been here before. Uh, like, they really kind of leaned into that whole, which, you know, the, the last shot of the movie is super confusing. It makes almost no sense to have him in that picture from 1921. Or does it? But exactly, or does it? I, I love that. I, there are so many theories about that last shot that, I you, you, again, you have to just make up your own mind as to yeah, what and here. You've always been the caretaker. Exactly! Oh my god, that was so creepy! Yeah, and that's what I like about this is, is okay, we're going to adapt it. We're going to change some things from the book, but, you know, I love the fact that they kept it open-ended and, like, you can come up with whatever theory you want. That, that makes it more effective because what's going to affect you isn't going to necessarily affect me in the same way, but I might find something else that's creepy about it. And so it just works and it makes it rewatchable. It really does. Some One people believe in the little... reincarnation thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That he just keeps finding his way back to this, just like all the other souls that are in that, you know, picture. That would be, that's an interesting take on that. Now, Keith, what were you going to say? Uh, one thing that I was uh, really hoping they were going to have in the movie was uh, the reveal of who Tony is. Yeah, okay, so... Yeah, they kind of skimped on Tony. Yeah. They did a little bit. So, Monica, you had not having read the book and not being familiar with it, are you okay with a little uh, spoiler action? Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. I might read it someday with a spoiler. Well, uh, so in the book, Tony, Danny's name is Danny Anthony Torrance. Tony is revealed to be Danny as an adult talking to him. And they definitely gloss over all that in the book, and it's just sort of his, um, you know, quote-unquote imaginary friend. Um it's it's weird the way that they go about that too because it does that is one kind of plot thread that's sort of left like unresolved because who you know Dick Halloran talks about the shining and it was him and his grandma and all of that and like Danny's shining manifested weirdly in that universe right because he he has like a voice in his head or the little boy that lives in his mouth I guess as he put it um and you're right I kind of would have liked to have seen that but at the same time it didn't really fit again the movie that Kubrick was the story that he was trying to tell. Wow, that makes right. so much more sense than watching the movie and thinking that he just had 
I don't know, he could hear ghosts or something. Like, oh man, I should have read the book. <laughs> I might actually read the book now. It's worth read. It's worth a read. Um, and I also, I, again, I do recommend the 97 miniseries if you can get through, you know, four and a half hours and Steven Weber, um, then it's worth going for. <laughs> Poor Steven Weber. He was I, so good on Wings. He was. And I. that's the thing. I don't dislike Steven Weber. It's just when you're, when, when you think of The Shining, if you haven't read the book, you think of Jack Nicholson. And it's so vastly different from Jack Nicholson's portrayal. Um, okay, the the shot of him frozen at the end, mm-hmm. I've seen that in various memes and whatnot. And for some reason, I always thought it, it just just the the look on the face with the the ice makeup on there. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was Jim Carrey <laughs> in in the meme. Well, I can see that. I didn't I didn't realize that it was Jack Nicholson from The Shining. Now it's funny that you say that because have any of you seen the deep fake videos? Where somebody took Jim Carrey's face and put it on Jack Nicholson in this movie? No. No, none of you? Oh, you got to find those. It's creepy how well that matches up. Really? Yeah. Yeah, maybe after we're done, uh, I'll see if I can find them for you and send you some links. Monica, you haven't seen those? No, not even a little bit. But I kept thinking in the movie, I'm like, how would this movie do if they remade it with uh, Christian Slater? Because it's like Jack Nicholson Jr., basically. Oh, man, I want to see that. Even if it's just some test footage, I want to see that. Um, But, yeah, somebody did a deep fake with Jim. They just put Jim Carrey's face into The Shining. The voice is the same and everything, and it's crazy. So I will definitely find that for you. Um, Let's see. Uh, Oh, go ahead. I I don't know. Just that last last scene there, the the look on the face is – it looks – Jim Carrey always seemed to have a more animated face to me than Jack Nicholson, and they're both very animated, so it's it's not like, you know, blowing him out of the water on that or anything. But mm-hmm. It just, that, that picture always just seemed more contorted, more, like there was... Yeah, no, I know what you mean. There was physically more being done with the face that seems more in the wheelhouse of Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm, definitely. Just trying to see if I can find that picture and put it up on screen. Um, here it is. No, stop that. Uh, let's see. Bring that up and just show this real, real quick. Just for anybody that's curious, that's the picture. It, it does look a little Jim Carrey, the way his eyes are rolling back. Um, but yeah, all right. So that was that. Um, no, I definitely recommend reading the book because uh, I think you're going to get a very different experience of the story too. Um, but uh, I kind of lost my train of thought here. Um, changes from the book too so there were other things like in the book the boiler of the hotel plays a much bigger role um Mm -hmm. and they mention it what once i think in the movie they're like oh you gotta turn the boiler once and then and then um wendy checks on it once yeah but that's like that's it and in the book i know it played a much bigger role um and there was also other little things little changes they made um they completely cut out the whole thing with the fire hose uh, acting like a big snake that scared Danny, um, mm-hmm. which fine again. That's probably kind of falls along the lines of the uh, the hedge animals coming to life. Like that wouldn't have looked great in a movie from 1980. I don't think. Like I just don't think it would have worked. Um, there was a costume ball that got cut. Yeah, yeah. They kind of show a little bit of that. I mean, they sort of got away with yeah, it. They I, they, they kind of got away with putting it in there and if you've read the book you know what's going on with that shot Mm -hmm. yeah it would have been too costly too to do those effects at that time so Mm -hmm. it would probably save them a great bit of money 
Yeah. Plus, we got them later in Ready Player One. <laughs> Very true. Um, one other change that I noticed, um, and I'm sure Keith, you probably noticed it, is the weapon that Jack uses uh, to get yeah. through the door. So yeah. in the movie, a rogue mallet. Right. In well, movie. in so in the movie, it's a it's an axe, and they set that up by talking about how Grady used an axe to kill his family and and whatnot. And in the book, it was a croquet mallet. No, rogue. Short croquet mallet. Sorry. Well, that's less scary. Yeah, I mean... It... Me the croquet mallet. Yeah, he messes up Wendy's leg with that, and I believe Dick ends up with a severe concussion at minimum. Uh, speaking of severe concussion, um, it's amazing. Like, can we talk about the fact that the, the character of Wendy is almost superhuman? Because not only does she whack him in the head with that bat, which the way that that was framed... That was a hell of a hit, and I'm surprised he ever got up from it. Uh, but then she carries, she drags him from that ballroom to the uh, to the the kitchen and puts him in the locker. That's incredible, like because she's not a big person at all. She's very skinny. How strong is she to drag this dead weight of you know Jack Nicholson's probably what 160 to 180 pounds? I'm gonna say it's adrenaline. <laughs> it's now, gotta be. Yeah, you need to save your kid from a. A train or whatever, and you lift it up. It will take somebody a long way. Yeah, but oh man, I like, and they do play up a little bit with the concussion, like when she's dragging him and he's kind of drooling and and doesn't know where he is and all that. But man, she whacked him hard with that bat. She was awfully well choked up on that bat too. I don't know if you've ever been hit by a baseball bat, but that don't feel. I have. It doesn't (laughs) feel good, but there's definitely a difference between a, a short bat and a long bat. Yes, this is true. Can I just point out that this is probably one of the first movies to, like, trope the, uh, well, to begin the trope of the axe, like, breaking down the door. Like, that is such a big trope in every movie, and you'll see it um, parodied in things. Oh, yeah. Oh. Here's Johnny. Yeah, and that's yeah, great. Which cause... took 60 do- doors to get it right, too. Yep. Yeah, that those was one of those. doors. Well, so th- originally they weren't. So the prop department made an easy-to-break door. The problem was, again internet rumor so it may or may not be true but the the story goes that the prop department made a nice breakaway door jack nicholson had been a volunteer fireman so he came in and just shredded the door on like the first try and they're like shit all right well i guess we're gonna have to make a stronger door now and they ended up having to make 60 of them because of kubrick and his retakes and i guess that one that one scene took something like three or four days to film just him breaking the door which by the way i love the shots that pan back and forth with him when he's swinging the axe because so many of the shots in this movie are these slow pans and slow builds and then that one had uh, a lot more energy to it and you really felt it you really felt the hits of the axe into that door um so that that's another one of those just wonderful filmmaking things that kubrick was so great at doing uh and then you know of course here's johnny the the probably the most famous line from this movie which again isn't in the book one of the very few ad-lib lines that ever was allowed by kubrick Mm-hmm. I also want to point out that before he started like axing down the door, he came up to it and he just knocked on it real lightly. Yeah, <laughs> just like okay, why are you? Oh, he oh, maybe she's dumb enough to open it up. He <laughs> man, he was so good in this movie. I can't say enough how good Jack Nicholson was in this movie and that those scenes in particular, like the last half hour of it when he just gets to go full on Jack, is just great. Um, yeah, so the Here's Johnny thing was great, because what what's the line in the book, Keith? Do you remember what it is when he breaks the door open? 
I, I wish I could remember. I want to say it's something like time to take your medicine or something like that. But the Here's Johnny was ad-libbed, and apparently Kubrick uh, at the time was living in the UK, so he didn't watch The Tonight Show, so it made no sense to him, and he almost didn't use it. And that would have been a shame, because I did capture that. Um, and it uh, sounds a little bit like this. Here's Johnny! Almost more well-known now than Johnny Carson using it for his show. In fact, I would <laughs> I would say probably is more well-known uh, than the Johnny Carson opening at this point, especially for anybody under the age of, like, 50. Did you capture my favorite line? Uh, I might have. I don't know. Um, oh, before I play any more cl- uh, clips like that, I do... So, when I was watching the movie this time, Shelley Duvall sounded... For the first, like, 30 minutes I was watching it, I couldn't figure out why... What who reminded me of Shelley Duvall in this movie, and then I remembered what it was. Uh, so I'm going to play two clips for you. One of them is Shelley Duvall, and one of them is not Shelley Duvall. You'll probably be able to tell them apart, but I, I just want you to see where my brain was going with it. So uh, here is Shelley Duvall. We're all going to have a real good time. Okay. Here is not Shelley Duvall. I'm cold. I didn't bring my jacket. <laughs> Damn, Jackie! I can't control the weather. That's very, very similar, <laughs> is it not? Am I crazy? Yeah. So that second voice, I have no idea who it is, but it's from a movie called Pod People that was watched by Mystery Science Theater 3000. Huh. So that gives you a little glimpse into how my brain works sometimes. I connected those two things. An episode of MST3K I probably haven't seen in 10 years uh, with The Shining, and I did it in one move. So what was the uh, what was the line, Monica? Uh Oh, when he says, um, I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I think I did capture that. I'm not going to... That was just... That line... Because it's just so... It's so insane. It's the absurdity of it. And it's it's great. And the way that he, like, claws at her when they're on the stairs. And he's just like... Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Tongue flicking out. And the way... his reaction when she smacks his hand with the bat is like it almost it kind of looks like he wasn't expecting that no i don't think he really wasn't uh so here's the line that you're talking about i said i'm not gonna hurt you i'm just gonna bash your brains yeah, that a little quaver in there with the yes brains. that that was a good place to cut it um i did capture a couple okay i do have one question um so in the towards the beginning of the movie uh when Wendy is talking to the doctor after Danny has his little episode and the doctor shows up and is checking him out and all that. And then they're talking later and she brings up the whole um, thing with the dislocated shoulder. She mentions that, right. But she mentions that a good thing came out of it and that Jack said, I'll never touch a drop again. And if I do, you could leave me. And he's been sober for five months, right? Mm -hmm. She's and and here's, here's the audio of it. Just so. He hasn't had any alcohol in the, Okay, so five months, right? When he goes to, and he's talking to Lloyd, and he starts to whine about it after the whole, you know, bruises on his neck thing, he says this. It was three goddamn years ago! Am I the only one that noticed that? It confused me this time around. I don't know why. Yeah, you know, I didn't put that together until you just played it, but you're right. It does, he does, (laughs) I don't know, that's kind of weird. Maybe he's just... Maybe he's off with time in his brain because he's already he is losing it, right? So yeah, that's true. This I is can when he's that. Yeah, um, or they made a mistake. 
I'm going to go with he's losing it over uh, it's just really hard for me to think Kubrick would make a mistake. Exactly. <laughs> um, I did capture a couple other quick things. So uh, I played Shelley Duvall already. Um, we got Joe Turkel with... Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's just, just creepy. That's a creepy way. Like, There's nothing that dude did in this movie that wasn't creepy. And plus the way he would stand and kind of look up through his eyes, that always gets me. Um, and I had to get Grady. Had to because he had the two of the creepiest lines in this movie. Can you guess what they might have been? Anyone? Uh, the one, the one near the elevator with the uh, Wendy. Nope. I will give you a hint. Both of them take place in the red bathroom. Ah, oh, the red bathroom. So the two, two of the, probably the creepiest lines and creepiest delivered lines are these. You've always been the caretaker. <sighs> yeah, that hmm. one. Sounds like one I've already said. Mm. Oh, it yeah, does, that and and the uh, because I've always been here. There's that, but then when he's talking about what he did to his family, was the one that got me. Where he's like, yeah, when I, my I when, had to correct them. Yeah, when my wife tried to stop me from what I was doing, and I corrected her. Ooh, that's freaking yeah. creepy as hell. Because he he says that, and it's the way he says corrected, and he really rolls that R, and he did it twice, talking about his daughters and his wife. And oof, that one got me. Play with us. <laughs> Come play with us, Danny. Forever, Forever and ever. I think you guys might have a Halloween costume for next year. I don't know. <laughs> I've already <laughs> got it. <laughs> uh, and then I did get um, I did get Danny Lloyd uh, doing his creepy voice um, for uh, a couple here because this was when uh, well, it's um. And he's not here, Mrs. Torrance. Yeah, I thought that was really good. That'll give you nightmares. Um, well, yeah. And also... Danny's gone away, Mrs. Torrance. Yeah, and... No, nope, 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 nope. Don't want any part of that. Kids kids can be extremely creepy, and when you play up that in a in a horror movie like this, it really gets to me. That's something that always gets to me. There is no Dana, only Zool. <laughs> <laughs> oh... But um, no, I mean, look, this is a classic movie, right? And now here's my question for you, Keith. So it's very different from the book. Mm -hmm. What did you think of it as an adaptation of the book? I thought it was actually a pretty good adaptation. Okay. Um, you know, it, it wasn't 100%, but they stuck to the main points. You know, they I, I don't think that they deviated too hard from the book itself. Mm -hmm. I did. They they had to change a few things because by then everybody had read the book that went to go see the movie. True. So you know it it made sense that certain things had to be changed, and I feel that they they definitely kept it in the upper percentage of what needed to stay and what could be changed. And in you know like what what had to stay and what could be changed. Yeah. They they found a good balance. Mm -hmm. And this was a novel that came out in 1977, so there was. This was still very much in the public eye uh, when this movie came out. It was very, very well known. It was a bestseller and all that. So, yeah, uh, I would agree with that. I think, and and then just as a standalone movie, because it it almost is a standalone movie. It's it's a loose adaptation, but it's great. Uh, it is one of. So I have seen. I mentioned at the top of the show. I've seen almost every Stanley Kubrick film at this point. Um, the, our film festival, our local film festival, played all of them uh, a few years ago. They were celebrating Stanley Kubrick, and which was 
really cool when uh, the credits are coming up and I saw executive producer Jan Harlan and I was like, hey, I've met that guy. Hmm. And I don't normally get to say that about, you know, movie credits. So that was kind of fun. To um, be able to say one about a Kubrick movie. Right. Um, so who, okay, of the four of us, who has seen a bunch of Kubrick movies outside of The Shining? Uh, starting with Monica. Have you seen any of his other stuff? Um, I've seen uh, A Clockwork Orange and I've seen... Uh, there was the war one, right? I can't full the full Metal Jacket? Now. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Man, why yeah. am I thinking of Apocalypse Now? Who does that movie? That was Francis um, But Ford I've seen Coppola. both of those. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, I've seen both of those movies. I, I may have seen another one and not known it was him because I, you know. 2001 A Space Odyssey? No, I've never seen that. I've seen that one too. <gasps> That's a I good know, one. right? Well, if you ever do that movie. <laughs> okay, you know what? Sometime you need to do a Kubrick month. Oh, that'll happen for sure, because there's definitely some good Kubrick movies. Now, this is not my favorite Kubrick film. This is, I I think, might be what I would consider maybe his best movie. It's hard for me to say, but it's not my favorite. Uh, My favorite is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, And if you haven't seen that before, that's one you definitely need to see at some point, because that movie is brilliant. Um, Not anything close. So one of the things with Stanley Kubrick is... His movies are very are are varied. This is very different from A Clockwork Orange, which is very different from 2001. Um, very different from Full Metal Jacket. Yes. Oh, absolutely. he did Lolita. He did Lolita. Yes. Um, the the older one though, not the one with Jeremy Irons. Oh, I know. Um, but he also uh, did Eyes uh, Wide Shut. <laughs> wasn't that one of them? I haven't seen it. I'm just. Yep, I'm that was one. Uh, okay. Eyes Wide Shut was one of his. Um, uh, he did a movie called Barry Lyndon that is a period piece. And what I remember most about that was learning that he shot a lot of that movie with natural light, including by candlelight, which blows my mind from a filmmaking standpoint to shoot an entire scene by nothing but candlelight. So he's got a very uh, distinct and varied catalog of films. But uh, this is probably in my top three of his movies with Dr. Strangelove and... It's hard for me to say uh, Clockwork Orange is a favorite film of mine because it's a really rough film to watch in parts, but it's very, oh, very good. Rough. I, oh, I, I another one of those movies that I haven't watched sober. <laughs> What'd you say, Christina? You said you loved a Clockwork Orange. Yep. Yeah, and look, I, I'm not saying it's not a good movie. Uh, it's just rough. It's difficult to watch in parts. Um, but that was, you know, that was part of it. That was the point that he was kind of going for, and that was one of the things he, with Kubrick is he didn't he didn't pull punches. He would create uncomfortable situations for people to, to be in is it the violence that bothers you or is it just like the mu- the movie in general it's the it's not just the violence the violence is part of it but it's the uh nihilistic violence right it's the violence for violence sake that is rough for me like violence in a movie right. is one thing but you know a lot of times in a violent uh, violence in a movie is either a uh, it's a slasher f- film or a horror film where it's it's meant to get that visceral reaction out of you um, or it is a uh, like a war film and the thing with the violence in that particular movie was yes it was designed to get a rise out of you but it is also intent on being uncomfortable to watch and so that's what's difficult for me at times but it's a phenomenal film at the same time so uh, and then 2001 is so different from all those because it's just 2001 is long, and if you thought the shots in this were long and drawn out, which they were, that's 
like nothing compared to 2001. So just be prepared for that if you ever do watch it. It's not a fast-paced movie at all. Um, it is not. It's a good film, but it drags. Yeah, it, well, it's another one of those that's very open to interpretation. Like, you you get to sort of create your own narrative out of it, in a way. A lot like this, a lot like The Shining, where you can connect the dots however you want in it, uh, which I appreciate. I like, uh, because that, that shows a filmmaker has trust in his audience to be able to take in the material. They don't, ha- they don't feel as though they have to hold your hand throughout the whole thing. I didn't realize all, almost all his films are really old. Like, for some reason, thought he was like 70s and 80s. Yeah, no, he, he got started in the 50s. And um, he actually, uh, Spartacus, he did with a bunch of blacklisted Hollow, uh, Hollywood people after the McCarthy stuff uh, and all the, the Hollywood blacklist. So, yeah, he was around for quite a while um, making movies. And it, and it was funny because if you look at his uh, IMDb page, the length of time between his films kept getting longer and longer. Uh, because of how much time he would take to make them. But he was he was a, a very singular director, uh, I think is about the only way you can put it, is there was, n- there was and has been nobody like Stanley Kubrick in terms of filmmaking. And uh, we're all better for him having been around, and I really hope that, uh, you know, his, his films will, I mean, obviously, they're on film, so it's kind of forever, right? Uh, you can always show it to new people, um, like we did here by showing this to Keith. He had never seen it before, and now he's, he can show that to somebody and keep it going, uh, which I think can is I? Pretty... It's like the ring. <laughs> 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 can I just... Uh, can... I would be remiss if I didn't point out the, the weird montage of scenes towards the end and the specific one with the bear and the guy in the room. Just yeah. It out. So... It's my job to point that out. I have a specific name for it, but I don't know if I want to say it on this show. I'm just saying it's an odd scene. It is. Now, that is part of that whole thing I was talking about earlier with Ager, um, and he utilizes that as part of um, sort of his theory behind the sexual abuse. Because to, to put it short, what his theory was is that the scene in the um, apartment where Danny comes in to get his fire truck and Jack is just sitting on the bed and calls him over and has him sit on his knee, that after that basically his theory was that after that scene in the movie what took place was that jack sexually abused danny danny then has his dream sequence that he goes into room 237 to kind of explain away to himself the fact that jack harmed him by choking him um and then there's all sorts of symbolism and there's pictures of stuff in in certain areas and I don't really need to go into it. Uh, you're better off finding Ager's article or the video and, and listening to him talk about it. But part of it was that shot that you're talking about with the man in the bear suit um, with the you know with the butt flap open. Um, it's so weird because I just I never I never got like the sexual part of it. It was like I knew it was abuse. I knew he was like you know pulling his arms and all that kind of stuff. But I just never. I never thought that. I never got that any times so I've seen this movie. Yeah, and well, and if that's you read the book though, that you know what the guy in the dog suit's about. Well, in the but see here's well, the yeah, thing. So, read the book, so I wouldn't know that. But here's the thing. So in the book, the guy in the dog suit was a ghost of a former person in the hotel who had a relationship with a former owner of the hotel, a sexual relationship. But Kubrick has was on record as saying that's not what was going on in that scene in the movie and that the guy was wearing a bear costume, not a dog suit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, he, he basically said, no, that's not what I was doing. But 
You know, it's hard to say. That is a very weird. And I remember the first time I saw this movie, that shot, and I was just like, what is with the guy in the, what? It doesn't even make any sense. And then it just happens, and then they go on. And it was one of those shots where they did that that super hard uh, kind of rack zoom, where they just zoom in real hard on something. And she's um, just, the look on her face, just so great. Like, she's just, like, horrified. Like, just... Yeah, she, with everything so that's confused. gone on, yeah, she has no clue how to even react to it anymore. And just, I'm just going to run then. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a weird, weird shot in that movie. Um, well, yeah, uh, so I want to thank you guys for joining me this week. This was a, a fun one to talk about. I love this movie, so I, you know, any excuse to watch a good movie, even if it is two, almost two and a half hours long, it's a long movie. Um, but it doesn't feel like that. It pays, it's paced really well, which is interesting given how long and drawn out the scenes and the shots are and how many scenes will go with no music and then the music does play and it's it's all very slow paced, um, but yet it still doesn't feel like two hours and 23 minutes. And how about uh, all, all those pages of Jack's typing? Oh my God. Like, you just know he's lost his freaking mind. Yeah, but they actually had somebody sit down and type that all out. Oh yeah, yeah apparently. They didn't have computers back then, remember? Nope. Well, apparently, they could have photocopied some of it. No, the the rumor is that it was uh, Kubrick's secretary that did it, and she took like weeks. <sighs> it took her weeks to type all those out. Man, she's probably yeah. insane now. <laughs> I know I I'm would be. The, the layout of some of those of of the the structuring of some of that writing, like the blocks, you know, mm-hmm. and the different in, indentations, that was all done on a typewriter. Not there was no. Oh yeah. Well, it was 1979. They didn't have a computer to print it out on at that point. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. Uh, great, great, great movie. Keith, I'm glad you got to watch it, and I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Um, because, you know, I always feel bad when I show you a movie for the first time that you didn't like. Uh, I'm still apologizing for, for how you felt about Tank Girl, uh, even though I know and, Christina and I liked the movie. And maybe Wait. the maybe the new one that will come out here in the next couple of years will be good. Who knows? Yeah, I... It, there was just a few too many things that were left unexplained. Like, how is the tank suddenly driving itself? Yes, I, yeah, we we've read we've, the comic. We've beaten that one to death. I would if I could. <laughs> if you've got it, lend it to me. It will return Cruise in control. the same condition. <laughs> but uh, I I really do. I want to thank all three of you for joining me this week, Monica. It was great having you on. Uh, we'll definitely have to do it again. Oh, thank you. Can, should we mention that the Doctor Sleep is coming out next week? Yes, so that was the reason that we did The Shining, is Doctor Sleep comes out on Friday. Um, so, show of hands, who's going to go see that this weekend? Christina, I already know you've got a ticket for it. Yep. <laughs> I'm raising my hand. Alright, good. Uh, I'm planning to hopefully be able to go see it. Probably next week, but... Yeah. It depends on, like, what, do you guys go on Saturday? Uh, Possibly, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to figure I, that out. If I've got the day off, yeah. If I get voluntold for work sorry boy does it looks good too i know keith you don't watch movie trailers so you can just plug your ears or whatever but man the trailers for it look really really good oh yeah so yeah uh dr sleep coming out on friday and that's why we chose the shining um now we do this show we live stream it every sunday which is what we're doing right now uh the show comes out on wednesdays you can find uh, the live stream is twitch.tv forward slash TV's Travis. Um, the website to get the show, if you can't find it on your uh, your Apple podcast or your Google podcast because I chose the worst name possible, um, you can always go to tvstravis.com and find the show there uh, because, as we like to say, it's all about feeding my massive ego. So everything is named after me. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, next week, uh, I've got a special one in store. Um, if Don is still in the chat room, Diddy, he is going to come on because he has never seen The Princess Bride. <gasps> Inconceivable. How is that even possible? I don't know. I do know. not think you know what that word means. <laughs> but as no, soon as... No, I'm sorry. That was a legitimate gasp right there. How? What? Yeah, no. When he told me that, uh, I was chatting with him and Alex Albisu, who's been on the show before, and both of us had the same reaction. And I was like, if I didn't already have the Shining lined up, we'd be doing it this Sunday. But you'd be ready for next week. So next Sunday live stream and next episode is going to be the princess bride and i'm going to have don on here and alex on here and we'll see who else uh, i can rope in to come in and talk about one of the most perfect movies yeah, for any situation um yeah. any any mood uh, that you're in there there's such a shortage of perfect movies and that's one of them yeah it really is so that's next oh, week the <laughs> you are the bird squad oh uh, and any excuse to rewatch that movie i'm up for so um so yeah, that'll be next week. The Princess Bride. Looking forward to it. Have uh, fun storm in the castle. <laughs> <laughs> Think they'll have a chance? No. It would take a miracle. Uh, all right, uh, Monica, you got anything you want to tell people about? Anything that you're working on? Um. Oh, let's see. Um, hmm. Well, about two episodes ago, I was on Beyond the Playlist with uh, Jay Hammond C. So if you want to check that out, nice. um, or check his show out because he's good. And uh, just recently this weekend, I did a little bit of uh, coverage of BlizzCon on the podcast known as Well Maintenance. So if you want to check that show out, that would be really cool. Otherwise, follow me on Twitter at WickedKitten13 and find out what what I'm doing, you know, frankly. Yeah, and and you also do uh, the Twitter account for America's Next Top Podcaster, right? I am social media coordinator for America's Next Top Podcaster. Very, very Don't cool. Don't simplify what I do. Sorry. I also do some stuff behind the scenes. God, you know, just oh, minimalize know. everything I... that I do in my life. <laughs> I, I figured, you know, you would promote that, so I wasn't going to say it. Well, no, that's okay. Uh, yeah, America's Next Top awesome. Podcaster. Uh, let's see. I think the... What are they on in the feed now? It would be... Investigative. Yes, Investigative Podcast. Oh, those were, those were cool. I enjoyed that. Um... Yeah, check out America's Next Top Podcaster, uh, hosted by Brian Ibbett. Uh, I mean, Monica is works on that. I'm a contestant. Hammond, uh, Jay Hammond works on that. So it's great. Don was a contestant. Um, he's going to be on next week. In fact, Alex was in season one. That's um, where I met oh, Alex. So was I. Yes, you were as well. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you're working on season two still. So, I'm so was Alex. Yeah, fair point. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't, don't hit me. <laughs> when don't, I see it. Don't ban me from the Discord. I'll ban everybody if I want to. Yeah, I know. Uh, but yeah, this was a, a fun show. Thanks everybody for being here. And um, as we like to say every week, get out and enjoy your movies. Mrs. Turns, you gotta keep regular if you wanna be happy. <laughs> <laughs>